Back in the fold, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Bahrain, and Egypt agree to end the blockade of Qatar. More than three years after Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Bahrain, and Egypt imposed a blockade on Qatar, finally a breakthrough. Leaders from across the Gulf region have signed a declaration calling for solidarity and stability. The blockade of Qatar by Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Egypt finally came to an end last week at the Gulf Cooperation Council Summit in Saudi Arabia. In June of 2017, the blockading states released a list of 13 demands for Qatar, which included downgrading relations with Iran, closing a Turkish military base on Qatari soil, and shutting down this network, Al Jazeera. There was an international outcry over the demands which Qatar said were a complete violation of its sovereignty. Qatar says the blockade is a violation of international law. An embargo to try to squeeze the country and its people economically. But after a tense few weeks, the conflict remained at a virtual standstill, only winding down to an end last Tuesday. After years of a blockade by land, air and sea, why is the rift ending now? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. To learn more about the economic impacts of the blockade, Al Jazeera's business unit, AJ Impact, spoke with a couple of scholars who've been following the dispute since the beginning. Gregory Gauss, professor of international relations at the Bush School of Government, Texas A&M University. I'm Jim Crane. I'm an energy fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute. I specialize in the Middle East. The GCC has been embroiled in diplomatic rifts before, most notably in 2014, when Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Bahrain removed their ambassadors from Qatar over political disagreements after the 2011 Arab uprisings. But the latest iteration of this fight began with a few fast-paced weeks in the summer of 2017. The timing collided with the start of the Trump administration in the U.S. and began with an international visit. Donald J. Trump arriving in Saudi Arabia for his first foreign trip as president. This is an American first. Never before has a president set foot on Saudi soil for his first trip abroad. The president and first lady made the best of it, meeting the king and taking in sounds of cannons and the sight of U.S.-made and Saudi-purchased jets overhead, trailing red, white, and blue exhaust. President Trump's trip to Riyadh was closely watched by people around the world. It was historic. Saudi Arabia and the U.S. signed a controversial arms deal on the first day of the visit. It was also responsible for a highly memed moment. A photo of Trump, Saudi King Salman, and Egypt's President Sisi holding a brightly lit globe made its way around the internet. The notorious orb photo was taken at the inauguration of the Global Center for Combating Extremist Ideology in Riyadh, a key moment of the visit. Trump had given a keynote address earlier in the day. This summit will mark the beginning of the end for those who practice terror and spread its vile creed. At the same time, we pray this special gathering may someday be remembered as the beginning of peace in the Middle East, and maybe even all over the world. Jim says the trip affected Trump's perspective on the dispute. Trump was really unprepared for this, got a one-sided view of the situation while he was in Riyadh on his very first trip overseas. And then 
made a couple of off-the-cuff remarks that apparently the Saudis and Emiratis took as a green light. The days after the summit in Riyadh moved at a breathless pace. On May 23rd, the state-run Qatar news agency was hacked, publishing statements falsely attributed to the Qatari emir. Media outlets in other Gulf countries ran with the news. Just over a week later, on June 3rd, journalists began publishing the leaked emails of Yusuf al-Uthayba, the UAE ambassador to the U.S., which included some of his correspondences with right-wing U.S. think tanks, like the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. Thanks to newly hacked emails, we know they were working closely together to undermine Qatar and Kuwait in the eyes of U.S. officials. Then, on June 5th, Gulf countries face a major political crisis. Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain and Egypt have cut diplomatic ties with Qatar and imposed a sea, land and air embargo. The blockading countries accuse Qatar of supporting quote-unquote terrorism, an allegation the country denied, and gave Qatar 10 days to comply with a list of 13 demands. Qatar refused. This list of, of, uh, of demands uh, made to be rejected. Both sides refused to budge. Saudi Arabia has consistently said the list is non-negotiable, while Qatar says the list of demands was never realistic. Here's what Jim had to say about the list. It's pretty clear that they didn't think this thing through. There's no exit ramp. Right at the very beginning, we're like, okay, how are they going to extricate themselves from this? That letter of ridiculous demands uh, on Qatar was way beyond the bounds of what sovereign states can tell each other to do under normal circumstances. I think it was a really serious, embarrassingly unprepared overreach. Still, the move had the personal support of Donald Trump, who shared his thoughts online. The president today siding with the Saudis, tweeting, they said they would take a hard line on funding extremism and all reference was pointing to Qatar. Perhaps this will be the beginning of the end to the horror of terrorism. Meanwhile, in Qatar, things seem to be changing quickly. Neighboring countries have suspended the flights of Qatar Airways and many Qataris are stranded in the airports of Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Saudi authorities expelled more than 12,000 camels, 5,000 sheep and their Qatari herders from its territory. Hundreds of Qatari citizens living in Saudi Arabia, Bahrain and UAE have had their lives abruptly uprooted. We've lost many customers already. We had invested heavily in building a huge clientele from all parts of the world. This is going to cost me a lot of money in the end. We have never experienced such a social trauma so close to home. And these are our brothers, our sisters, our neighbors. But some things did begin to calm down with time. Concerns about Qatar's food supply, which is mostly imported, subsided after a few days. There was a couple of days where there was no fresh milk, but fresh milk's back on the shelves. Everything seems as normal. Not a problem. On the shelves, Turkish goods have replaced Saudi products, which this country had for a long time depended on. Farms all over Iran have increased production to fill the gap in the Qatari market after Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and other countries severed supply routes. And over the long run, Qatar expanded its trading relationships with countries outside the GCC. Those countries include Turkey and Iran, two relationships explicitly mentioned in the 13 demands of the blockading countries, in some ways creating the exact opposite effect than the one intended by the blockade. 
But Qatar still had an economic burden to shoulder. For example, the country paid Iran a reported $100 million yearly fee to use its airspace to get around the blockade. Gregory says this immense cost was one Qatar could afford to take. I thought it was always a foolish idea that you could economically blockade a country that has, by some measures, the highest per capita income in the world. It would always be possible for the Qataris to get what they needed. There's some economic elements here, but it's the human side, right? The way that people in Qatar who have family relations across borders, who are married to people across borders. It, it was more the limitations on the movement of people, I think, that was probably more pressing in terms of the effects of this blockade. These drastic measures are already having a brutal effect, spitting children from parents and husbands from wives. People from across the region risk losing jobs and having their education disrupted. There are more than 11,000 Saudis, Bahrainis and Emiratis living in Qatar. Overnight, suddenly, they're in limbo, not knowing where they'll be able to call home. A lot of families are integrated between different countries in the Gulf region. Why should we be separated because of politics? Limbo continued all around for a few years. Jim says the state of affairs hurt the GCC. It's a pretty damaging situation for the GCC politically as well as economically. There's an understanding that the embargo really has failed, strategically especially, and that, that the Qataris are doing okay, and they've made other friends elsewhere in alternate arrangements, and that this has been a really big failure. Gregory says the blockading countries may have misread the U.S. reaction to their demands. I remember thinking that the Emiratis and the Saudis must have thought that the Trump administration would be with them, ignoring the fact that America's largest airbase in the Middle East is in Qatar. And Qatar had what is arguably the best lobbyist in America on its side, which is the Pentagon. And so it seemed to me that both the Emiratis and the Saudis had an outsized belief and an incorrect belief in the ability of the Trump administration to force the Qataris to come to heel. And I think that was their fundamental mistake. That base that Gregory mentioned is Al Udaid Air Force Base, and it hosts the U.S. Central Command headquarters, which covers the Middle East and Central and South Asia. If you look at CENTCOM on a map, Qatar falls roughly in the center of that map. And so the capabilities here allow us to reach out on order to any corner of the CENTCOM region. In 2018, Qatar announced it would spend $1.8 billion expanding the base. Meanwhile, in the United States, Saudi Arabia and Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman were entering the headlines more and more often. A diplomatic crisis roiling since the October murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. The new CIA assessment finds that Prince Mohammed bin Salman ordered the killing. Saudi Arabia's jailing of female activists who have challenged one of the world's most misogynistic governments. A former Saudi intelligence official has filed an explosive lawsuit against the Saudi crown prince. He alleges that in 2018, the prince sent a group of Saudi hitmen to Toronto to find and kill him. There was also an interest in the Saudi crown prince's personal relationship with Jared Kushner, Donald Trump's son-in-law and senior advisor. The two men were on a first-name basis, calling each other Jared and Mohammed in text messages and phone calls. As well as the renewed focus on the U.S. role in the war on Yemen. 
An aerial bombing campaign by the Saudi-led and American-backed coalition hammers much of the country's north. The bomb used by the Saudi-led coalition in an attack that killed 40 children in Yemen earlier this month was made in the U.S. Reports suggest the bomb used was made by Lockheed Martin and according to CNN supplied by the U.S. government as part of a sanctioned arms deal. The U.S. Congress passed a measure in 2019 to end U.S. military assistance to Saudi Arabia in the war. But Trump vetoed the bill. Jim says the transition to a new administration in the U.S. may change how Saudi sees the rift with Qatar. I think that there's been some rethinking of Saudi hardline positions and some Saudi foreign policy positions that are going to run afoul of the Biden administration that maybe Trump was okay with, especially Yemen, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi as well. I think that Saudi Arabia might be facing a tougher diplomatic time. The Trump administration has also been pushing to end the blockade in its last months in office. Here's National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien speaking in November. It's in America's interest to have harmonious relationships within the GCC because that provides an important counterbalance to Iran. It it, it would open up the opportunity for more peace deals with Israel and, and creating a real economic opportunity zone across the Middle East. So we'd like to get that rift solved. But that perspective wasn't universally shared. On November 16th, the same day O'Brien mentioned the American interest in bridging the divide, Yusuf al Utayba, the same UAE ambassador whose emails were leaked, downplayed the dispute. With the Qatari rift, it's a small problem. It's not on anyone's priority list right now. I think we just have a very philosophical disagreement over what we want our region to look like. They want to go their way, we're going to go ours, and I don't think anyone pays too much attention to it. Tensions have also been high between Qatar and Bahrain in recent weeks, as Qatar has accused the other Gulf country of flying military planes over its airspace. Despite these displays by some of the blockading countries, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Bahrain, and Egypt all agreed on Tuesday, January 5th, to restore ties with Qatar. They signed a quote-unquote solidarity and stability agreement at the GCC summit. Initial reports say Qatar hasn't implemented any of the original 13 demands, though the Qatari foreign minister said Al Jazeera's closure wasn't raised during the talks. His counterpart from the UAE, Anwar Gargash, said the demands had been, quote, a maximalist negotiating point, end quote, but also mentioned it would take time to rebuild trust between the countries. Gregory had some thoughts about what Saudi Arabia and the U.S. had to gain by bridging the rift. One, they make the Trump people happy going out because that seems to be what Mr. Kushner wants. And then there are the technical elements, right? The flight patterns for Qatar Airways. Apparently, one of the reasons that the Trump administration on the way out was pushing for some relaxation of the boycott is because they want to hit Iran yet again, by removing the need for Qatar Airways to use Iranian airspace, reduce payments from Qatar to Iran. So part of these mixed motives is the Trump administration's desire to put as much of a squeeze on Iran as possible before it leaves office. Then there's the motivation that Saudi Arabia and other blockading nations have to look ahead to a new administration in the U.S., 
I think that the crown prince and the Saudi elite know that they have to mend fences with the Democrats because their embrace of the Trump administration has pulled the Saudi-American relationship into this partisan polarization of American politics. So what can they do to try to heal this rift, to, to show the incoming Biden administration that they're willing to play ball? It does remove one thing on the list of problems that the incoming administration would have with Saudi Arabia. I don't think that it's very high up there in terms of the list of problems. I think Yemen is higher. I think that the human rights issue in Saudi Arabia is higher. The whole issue of re-engaging with Iran on the nuclear deal is higher. But it could be that the Saudis and the Emiratis see a movement toward the end of the rift with Qatar as a signal to the Biden administration that they're willing to do business. So it's a, you know, like a lot of things, I think in the diplomatic world, very different motives coming together to create a possibility. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Nagin Odiai with Priyanka Telve, Ney Alvarez, Dina Kispe, Alexandra Locke, and Amy Walters. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Natalia Aldana is our engagement producer, and Stacey Samuel is our executive producer. Special thanks to the AJ Impact Business Unit and Patty Savka for collaborating with us on this episode. To see more coverage of this story, check out our Instagram and Twitter feeds at AJ The Take. We'll be sharing stories from Al Jazeera journalists, like one documenting the opening of the Qatar-Saudi border for the first time in years. We'll be back.